You are listening to the Appelling Elite Podcast and making expectations for what is possible for people with developmental disabilities. Here is your host, my brother, Eric Gall. Hi, I'm Eric Gall, and today I'm honored to bring you a conversation I recorded with Joe Clayton. And Joe is a survivor of Rideau Regional Center, an institution that closed, uh, located in Smith Falls, Ontario. And this uh, conversation with Joe was recorded on April 16th, 2020. Today being September 1st, 2020, at the time of this publication. And a lot has changed in our world since I published, or since I recorded, rather, this conversation with Joe. Uh, COVID-19 and its global impacts have been a major stressor, stressor on our families, including mine. As well, there's been an awakening to the social justice issues in our world for Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color. So before I share this conversation with Joe Clayton with you, I'm going to share my stance in Empowering Abilities stance on anti-racism and what I'm doing to be anti-racist. At Empowering Ability, we are committed to the work of anti-racism. We are learning about anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, and how white privilege and superiority impact the people and communities we serve and that I serve. Uh, you know, we and, and at Empowering Ability, and I am aware of the intersection of disability, LGBTQ+, and how that increases the societal devaluation of BIPOC. We must continue to have uncomfortable conversations to dismantle systematic racial barriers that have blocked social and economic progress for Black and Indigenous peoples for generations, as well as people with disabilities. We know that the first step towards change is to speak up. And we want to be very clear, Black Lives Matter to empowering ability. And we commit to no longer being silent or neutral as we move towards tangible action and change. So for me, as the founder of Empowering Ability, I've completed a six-week anti-racism training course. And I commit to ongoing learning on anti-racism. As a cisgender white man, I'm doing the work to recognize my biases. You know, such as I just want to share a few of these realizations that I've had with you around, um, you know, my privilege. And as a white cisgendered man, I'm not worried or I don't have the fear of being shot or killed when being pulled over in my car by the police or even, you know, being harassed for that matter. I can see my race and gender widely represented in roles and in spaces that I aspire to be in or I aspire to. I'm confident that I can reach out to organizations and to leaders and have them open my emails or even share my content. I can be confident that families will be open to working with me because I feel familiar or I feel safe to them. I can speak to you without my race being put on trial. I can step away from the conversations of race if I wish to. 
So these are some examples that I've realized of, of my white privilege. And now, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of these things. Whereas six months ago, I wasn't. So, you know, part of this learning was through completed through a six week anti-racism course. And I'm continuing my learning and, and my journey to be an anti-racist. And I'm, I'm listening and I'm, I'm listening to diverse voices. And I encourage all of us to be doing this work of anti-racism. So thank you for listening to me on this important issue. And today I'm bringing you this conversation with Joe Clayton. Uh, Joe is a survivor of the Rideau Regional Center, an institution um, in Smith Falls, Ontario, um, that has closed. And, and Joe experienced several traumas and injustices at a very young age um, while being institutionalized. And Joe shares with us his experiences, um, and he also shares, you know, his life after being institutionalized and through his faith, faith, how he found forgiveness and the courage to live life. Joe is an indigenous man. He is a creative, uh, and he expresses that through photography and art, and he lives with his partner, Christina. So uh, before we roll this conversation with Joe, I just want to warn you that Joe describes many of the horrific acts performed uh, and forced on him. And the description of these acts might be triggering for some listeners. So here is my conversation with Joe Clayton. Joe, welcome to the Empowering Ability podcast. So happy to have you on today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, right on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, Joe Clayton, as a um, self-advocate and a survivor of um, an institution, the Rideau Regional um, Center, I'm honored to uh, have you come on the podcast today and share your story and to share your experience with us. So um, I'm going to hand it over to you here, Joe, and um, and it, we would be honored to, to hear your story. I wanted uh, just to say thank you to everybody who's listening to my story. And um, anyways, here we go. I was born in Pembroke, Ontario on February 9th, 1953. I was eight pounds, nine ounces. I was with my mom for five years. My mom was sick and she could not care for me. So my mom's friend looked after me, after me until she died. Uh, um, on August 18, 1958, at the age of five, I was made uh, a ward of the Renfrewshire Native Society. I remember that day as if, if it were yesterday. My mom said goodbye to me and I got into the car and stood up on the back seat of the car, watching out of the back window as mom got smaller and smaller and then she was gone out of my life. My life was like a game. I'm, I was always made to move from one place to another. Someone from the Chirinese study would throw my clothes in the trunk of the car and they would take me to a new place. Up on arrival at the new place, I was told, you have to stay here. I had no say in the matter. 
I felt like people were rejecting me all the time and that no one really cared for me. Nobody seemed to understand my needs or my problems, and they never asked me to talk about them. My foster mom decided it would be better if I was institutionalized before I came too close or too dependent on my foster family. On May the 16, 1966, at the age of 12, the Children's Aid Society put me in to Reed Original Center in Smith Falls, Ontario. Let me tell you, being in an institution was like living in hell. First of all, I was put in the mission ward where we were made, where we made us to take our clothes off and stand before them naked. The staff then proceeded to measure us to determine what size of clothes we needed until our clothes arrived about a week later. We had nothing else to wear except a nightgown. Once our clothes arrived, we had to put our names on every item to make sure no one stole them from us. During the stay in the mission ward, the staffs would take us for walks and we were made to hold hands so that nobody would run away. This made me feel like a dog. The staffs also line up like a herd of sheep. After two weeks in the mission ward, I was transferred to 3D ward resident with 25 male patients. Remember, that I was only 12 years old at the time. I can't tell you how afraid I was looking up at these older men who looked like giants to me. We had to stand in line for our meals and for our pills, which they call candies. If I move an inch while in this line, one of the patients will attack me. Needless to say, I only moved once in the lineup and never again. We also had to walk down the hallway in line to get to our showers with our towels wrapped around our waist. We had to shower in the same place with no privacy, which made me feel like I was in prison. I was terrified and scared seeing all these naked men around me. They hit me with wet roll-up towels and I end up cuts on my body. I was also gang raped in the shower and passed out from this attack. There, were, there was lots of fighting and stealing in 3D. I fear for my life and my belongings, and older men attacked me with scissors. I was cut, but nobody cared how I was treated. I was made to, to feel ashamed, very lonely, and afraid for my life. The doors of 3D were always locked. And the only time I was allowed out of staff members to go for walks, washroom, showers, meals, or school, once when I did not follow the rules, I was put in a dark room. They called this the side room where doors were locked. I was made to sit naked on a cold floor. And when I was sitting on the cold floor, um, there was no toilets, there was no bathroom. So you would just urine on the floor or bathroom on the floor. And then you, when you leave the side room, you come back and you clean it. Men would look in the windows and laugh at me. Another time when I did not follow the rules, they put a, my head in a total bowl and made me kneel in a corner for two to three hours. 
Once when I swear, they made me eat a bar of soap. I was sick to my stomach. There was never any privacy at Riedel. I did not understand why I was being treated so badly. I sat in the corner crying of fear and sadness. Not all the staffs are bad. People, we had some good staffs as well. Every night I was attacked and raped by some of the patients who said, if I told the staff, they would kill me. This went on for six years, and I was once told I was, I was being taken for a brain test where they hook wires up to my head and put a piece of wood under my tongue. I was then shocked, and my tired jaw shook. Nobody ever explained to me why they did this. After running away from Rio Center several times, I've been found and returned. I met a nice man, Lyle Nichols, at Rita Regional, who informed me that if I did not run away for a solid year, they would let me out. On May the 16, 1971, age of 18, a social worker from Renfrew came and picked me up, and I was happy and finally able to leave Rita Regional Center. Leaving there was like hell for me. It is great to talk about my story, but moving ahead in the future was difficulty because of the institution was blocking me. Many people offered to support me, but they could not get through me. The institution was holding me back until I met Christina in 2014, and she helped me to see the way. The day I met Christina, I decided not to let the past take me down, but to live and be free from the past. First, I learned to love myself and to forgive anyone who hurt me. Then I learned to move, move on and a balanced life. After, after that, I decided to share my story. Being able to share my story and experience with others has given me the knowledge to never ever let this happen to anyone again. I believe that sharing such hardship in life are the big part of healing process. I hope sharing my story will change the way people see others with disability. And I encourage those who are being abused to speak up and start the amazing healing process. My goal is to educate people about what happened in the institution, it is to do my best to ensure that this type of punishment and abuse doesn't happen again to any human being. Sexual abuse is the worst thing that can happen to anyone, to anyone. Of the many others who were abused at Rita Regional Center, some are dead and their secrets lies with them. I'm still alive and I'm proud to be speaking for them. You just can't take a shower and wash away the horrible memories. I'm glad I did not successfully end my life because then I would just be another victim of abuse in an institution who takes his story to the grave. I'm a survivor. I know that someday I will die, but I will rest well because I actually did something to help our community and our world by speaking up for what I believe. I'm very happy today to be successful in my new life, running an art gallery, enjoying the things around me, going camping, fishing, bicycle, photographing wildlife. I, I even enjoy the winter times in Northern Ontario. Yes, winter. I love it. 
I love to go snowshoeing and, and skiing, learning how to do art on the computer with my photos is something I never did before because I did not feel worried about myself. When I start to believe in myself, all the worthless was gone. A new created door opened for me. When I go home after telling my story, I would relive it and I would become very grumpy. Yes, me grumpy inside. But I, but I now found a way to handle these feelings. Taking photos, recreating art, finding other ways to solve the problems have brought me to a healing process with which also heals humanity. My faith in God and the universe has helped my journey. One thing I do remember when I was in the institution, this prayer helped me a lot, a lot. This prayer is for all the people who died in the institution. And, in the, and, and our prayers are for the native schools and the people that did not make it too. I did not get out and did not get out to tell their story. The, the prayer I'm saying is when I was in the institution, I was there, and I only remember one prayer that my foster mom taught me. It was, the Lord is my shepherd. So every time I would get abused, I would remember this prayer, the Lord is my shepherd. And that's all I knew until later. I Now I can read the whole thing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in the green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of the righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, do, yea, do I walk through the valley of shadow of death. I'll fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff. They comfort me. Thou prepares a table before me the, in the presence of my enemies. Thou anoints my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will do well, I will do well in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you, uh, everyone, for listening to my story. And thank you again. Joe, thank you so much for sharing your story. And it was really a difficult story for me to listen to and i'm sure for the others that are going to listen to this podcast i'm sure their stomach turned more than once just like mine um and you know i could feel the emotion for the tragedy that happened to you and the terrible experience that you lived through as a child right from 12 to to 18 and no child should ever have to go through what you went through joe sexual abuse and physical abuse and emotional, mental abuse. Um, it's, it's terrible. Um, one thing that, that comes through to me, Joe, is just your resiliency and, and how you were able to um, have that experience, that terrible experience, that traumatic experience as a young age and um, still become the man that you, you are today and in, in enjoying life. Um, and there's, you know, it's so much for us to learn from, from your stories and, and thank you for sharing. And I think, you know, if anybody listened to your story and you hadn't mentioned that you were in an institution um, for people with developmental disabilities, um, they would have assumed that you were in jail. And um, 
it's it's just completely completely wrong. Thank heavens that that institution, the Rideau Regional Center, is is closed. It probably took way too long to to close it. Um, but but thanks heavens it, it's closed. And many other people, I imagine, had terrible traumatic experiences and abusive experiences, um, such as yourself. As yourself, and, and thank you for for helping to be the voice of those people that um, are no longer with us or or don't have a voice. Um, so maybe there's a, there's a couple of questions that I have for you, Joe, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you were, you ran away, um, a couple of times. Um, and, and it sounds like the third, eventually you were, you were set free. Can you tell us about those experiences of trying to escape and, and, and get out? Well, when I ran away from the institution, um, you know, like I said, there was an electric fence at that time. It wasn't very big. It was just enough you could just probably jump over it. Um, but the train was um, used to stops. And, but they would say, uh, the staffs would tell everybody, say, if you ran away three weeks or four weeks or and you didn't get caught, uh, you'd be free. And um, it was like a game or to me now these I think about it, it was like a game. So so but I didn't run away because of what they said. I ran away is because I wanted to get away from what happened to me in there, the abuse and the things. I was afraid for my life. I mean, I, I was raped and, you know, and treated like a, a criminal. Well, I didn't, I was treated, I was put in the institution because I had a disability. And, and to me, that was totally, I was a normal poor child. I was a normal, there was, there were so many people who did not have a developed disability who were normal people. And they were just throwing them in there and locking them up and making names for them saying they had this or that or whatever. And right. And to your point, there's nothing that you did. You were born you and because of how other people viewed you, they stuck you in this terrible uh, institution or jail. Well, they just thought this would be, um, like I read in my story, uh, institutionalized me. It'd be better for me. I probably, but that's what they thought that these places were good for people to go in. And but when I ran away, it, um, that's what you do when you're treated bad. You run away. You know yourself. And in the Great Escape, they ran away. Um, in in prisons, they ran away. Um, but uh, let's go. For, I think well, we'll cut that one. But maybe the Great Escape. We saw the movie how they ran away because of the way they were treated. And so I just. I didn't run away because it was a contest or a game. I heard about it, but my, I was scared for my life and I, and I wanted to just to get out of there. Mm -hmm. So by running away, I did draw attention to somebody and came to me and says, I'll tell you what, if you stop running away for a year, you'll be out. 
and his word came true and I was out. So I'm glad I, I did run away because if I didn't, who knows where I would be right to this day. Right. So thanks to that person. And I'm very happy that staff did that, you know, for me. Right. If, if, if that hadn't happened, Joe, how long do you think you would have been forced to stay in that institution or, you know, jailed in that institution? Some people spend their whole life in the institution, so we don't know. Um, I could have been worse, you know. I mean, they were doing a lot of treatments. They were doing a lot of things, um, experiments. Um, there's a lot of things that I don't even talk about because I, I just don't know how to talk about it because it's inside of me what I saw. But um, you, it's like... It's unbelievable the things that I seen and saw, um, the treatments that they give people. Um, I probably would be in there for a long time. Yeah. I probably, you know, I because uh, you have to understand um, in those days that you're in society, um, that's what they were doing because there was there was no room for a lot of people. So they figured institutions would be the best place that would get care and love and support. But, but you, got the op you got the exact opposite. <laughs> you so got when, neglect, abuse, and torture. When the workers would bring people, myself, in the institution, they look around and go, wow, it looks really nice here. They were making the place look lovely so people would think the place was nice. Nice chandeliers in the dining rooms. Um, let's say um, all bowling alley, swimming pool, auditorium, um, uh, movies. You know, you know, like the theater. We had our own theater. Uh, we had uh, we had our own um, doctors in there. We had our own food in there. So they were looking. What they did, they made it look like. It was a wonderful place to be. Disneyland, let's put it. Yeah, Disneyland. So the people go in there and they, they look around and they say, wow, this is a good place for this, you know, whoever. And so we, that, I think it was, um, I think there's a word for it. I'm trying to remember the word to um, make people think in their mind, that this is, what do you call that word? When the government or whoever made this building. Conspiracy? Conspiracy. Because um, a lot of people walk in there and they bring their kids in and they, they thought it was a wonderful place. They would try to make things look good, but the inside, no. And, right. and if, if, you, if, you, if you saw my pictures, I think I sent them to you when I was in the institution, those smile in my face, they get you to smile. They ask you to smile, to, to make you, to show people that you're happy. So yeah, so there was a lot of things going on there that, um, but the thing is, that happened a long time ago, and today is reality, and today is a new life. And today, I want people to hear my story and to realize that, we're not monsters that came out of the institution. We were human beings, and we, 
we just want to be love and be respectful. And we, we, are, we are here now and we, are, we're, we just want to be happy. And that's... Right. And, and you're a living example of that. I, I just went, that's all, yeah. Yeah. And example? How, how did you... So there's a lot of trauma you experienced um, that you shared with us. And you said you've gone through a process of forgiveness and learning to love and lo- learning to love yourself. I would think that forgiveness would be a really hard thing for those people that abused you and, and sexually abused you. Um, what was what was helpful for you to to work through that forgiveness? Was there a specific- my God? That's a good question. My God and my faith helped me um, um, help me to learn um, to forgive, and and that was my. Um, it wasn't easy. It was very hard at times. I had to see a PhD doctor um, because I didn't love myself. And, I, and so I had to learn to say that word. So I had some people there helping me to um, help me to, um, to say this word. I love myself and, and, to forgive my, and to forgive all the people that hurt me. It took a lot of healing inside, but when I asked God and my faith and God to help me, and when I cried out to God and said, please help me, uh, I think that faith helped me. And we all have maybe different ways to express that, to, to go different ways to be healed, but that healing for me, um, it's amazing how... I just am totally feeling, um, I don't feel as that anymore or that angry anymore. I, I, um, I said this happened a long time ago and, um, and now here I am. And it, but it was hard. Yes, it was really hard. But um, it, with, with the great supports that I had, and the great people that around me who cared about me and who helped me through this and all the churches that I've been and the ministers who helped me in this and, and prayed with me. Um, I think that, that my faith has helped me a lot. You have to find, I had to find something and I found something and, and I, I don't go and preach at anybody or like that. I just live it every day and try to do my best and, um, and just do my best. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Joe. Um, what are your thoughts on what should happen with the institutions that are still operational today? Many have been closed, but there are still, um, institution or institution-like settings that uh, people with developmental disabilities um, are being put in that where it's not their choice. And I think even when I think about it, you know, 
group homes, for example, where there might be four or six or eight people with a developmental disability being told that they all need to live in the same house and not really having a choice in that is still an institutional model. Um, what's what's your what are your thoughts on that? What do you think should happen with that in those institutions that do exist or institutionalized models such as group homes? I think what I'm trying to say is um, reason why I'm reading my story. I'm hoping institutions that are here today and group homes they will hear my story and they'll learn something from it and they and it will maybe help them to grow or maybe it'll help them to just um there's something that maybe will help them through my story so yeah yeah and choose better uh, staffs maybe or whatever yeah um, it's just just um yeah what joe what's your your message for the world in terms of how people with developmental disabilities need to be treated we as the people of disabilities we cry just like everybody else we laugh like everybody else we we we're human beings just like everybody else and like i said before we just want the world to know we are not monsters who got other institutions. We are human beings and we need to be respect and to be loved. And um, we don't need to be treated like babies. We need to be treat treated like a human being. And we, I find, yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Joe. And, you know, everybody's rights, people with developmental disabilities included, need to be recognized and honored. And people with disabilities need to be treated just like everybody else. So I completely right. agree with what you're, what you're saying. And, I, and that goes for having choice in their life and being able to choose where they're going to live, what they're going to do. And, um, and you're a great example, um, Joe, and, and from you sharing your story in terms of what's possible when somebody is given the right support and somebody's given, you know, tools and, and resources and, and, you know, you've been able to create um, a wonderful life with yourself, even though you've gone through those very traumatic experiences. Um, so moving forward just into today, Joe, can you share us with us a little bit more? You mentioned your art gallery. If you could share a little bit more about your art gallery, your art, and maybe where people could um, find you either online or get in, get in touch with you to learn more. Yes, we'll do this quick because I'm going out. Of, I'm going out on my phone, so we'll do it fast. Uh, yeah, people can contact me. Um, uh, log on to Facebook, the Nature Natives Art Gallery, and they can see uh, Christina and my uh, artwork. In the notes of the podcast episode, I'll include your details. Um, okay, where people can check out you on Facebook and how they can get in touch with you. That's probably the easiest uh, 
easiest way to do it. And I, and I have a business card. It's called Joe Clayton, um, motive, 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 motivational and applicant speaker, a voice to the nation. And, um, I've been uh, passing these cards out everywhere too. So if if you, if people want to hire me to come out and speak, I can, um, um, I, and uh, I don't know if I get my email out, but, but if yeah. they want to, I'll, I'll include it in the, in the show notes in the blog for you. Um, you know, so um, I want to respect your, your time here and um, yes, I'm super grateful that you came on and shared your story with us. And um, I, you know, I've learned a lot from you and I really admire your resiliency and your strength and uh, your courage to, to share your very important story with us. So thank you so much for, for sharing with me and, uh, and the rest of the world. Well, thank you. And I just want to thank you very, very much for inviting me to speak and uh, give me the privilege privilege to uh, speak about my story and uh, and um, and and the opportunity and uh, and uh, just uh, to say keep safe and, and everybody and um, we'll be back to normal soon thanks joe so a big thank you today to joe clayton for sharing his story and experiences with us The acts forced upon Joe are horrible, and no human should ever have to endure those experiences again. By Joe sharing his story, hopefully it pushes us to continue to be better, to do better, to value all people, to value people with disabilities, to value indigenous people, to value black people, to value people of color, and to value LGBTQ+. Uh, people. The social injustices we're seeing today might look a little bit different than what we heard from Joe, but they still exist. They exist in our systems, they're programmed into our societies, and they're programmed into us. We have to do better. I'm Eric Gall. Thank you for listening.